This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm Linda Mottram. Russia's Vladimir Putin ominously warns against interference in Ukraine, but he's also become much more harsh at home. Some of the most dramatic language is coming from Putin himself. It's a fight against external enemies, against internal enemies. So we've really got the kind of language that was common in the 1930s showing up in Putin's speeches these days. And bad economic news compounds the coalition's travails over national security in the election campaign. So, the economy. It's meant to be safe ground for coalition governments, but it started to look like a liability this week for Scott Morrison. I've got a 78-year-old mum. I had numerous health issues, operations, but when the fuel flew up to like $2.40, I couldn't go and see her as often. They've gone through the roof. You've noticed. Especially meat and vegetables. I mean, eight, nine dollars for a cabbage is a bit rich. A pound of strawberries was ten dollars. New data on inflation alarmed many, showing the cost of living is rising at its fastest rate in 20 years. The government says this is part of a global problem. Australia is not immune from the international pressures driving up inflation. We see in Canada that inflation is running at 6.7%. In New Zealand at 6.9%. In the United Kingdom at 7%. In the United States at 8.5%. But the figure was higher than expected and that's heaped pressure on the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates, possibly at its meeting next week, during the election campaign. Labor is pinning the blame for soaring prices on the coalition. Australians are getting absolutely smashed by the rising cost of living on Scott Morrison's watch. This is Scott Morrison's triple whammy of skyrocketing cost of living, rising interest rates and falling real wages. This inflation number should be a wake-up call for a government which is out of touch, out of plans and out of time. So does either side have a plan to tackle it? And just how difficult are these numbers for whoever forms the next government? Well, prices jumped in the March quarter a massive 2.1%, which took the annual increase up to 5.1%. Now, that was well ahead of even the most bearish expectations among economists. So it reminds me of, you know, when I was a student in the 1980s, when we had something called stagflation, runaway inflation, falling growth, recessions. It really does ring a few alarm bells. Well, Nikki Hutley is an independent economist. I think the most concerning thing is what we call non-discretionary inflation. So the things that you have to have to buy, you know, your food, your housing, um, your your fuel for your car kind of thing, that went up 6.6% year on year. So significantly higher than the 5.1% headline number. So, you know, if prices are rising, you've got less money to spend. There are things you can put off buying. Maybe you won't get another dining table or, or a jumper. But, you know, you've got to buy your food and, and, and pay your rent. So that's you know, shows just how difficult it is for people at the moment. And while inflation is soaring, wages are not. Now, Labor is hammering the government on that. Why is pay not going up when everything else is? 
There's been a real change in, I guess, the power balance, if you like, between firms and employees for quite a period of time now. And we've seen far more of profits stay as profits in the firm and the share of profits as a percent of the economy has gone up very strongly while the percent of wages has actually declined. And this has been over close to a decade now. Part of that's around bargaining power. Part of that's around the fact that we have had very low inflationary um, expectations and low outcomes. And so we haven't got those wage outcomes. But a really important one here, Linda, is the fact that we haven't really seen a big shift in productivity. And productivity is the key to getting sustainable wage increases. So this has created a political problem for the government, this very high inflation at least. The government says these are global problems. You're pointing to it being more than that, that there are structural problems in the economy. Have government policies actually made things worse? Well, if you look at one of the biggest increases in the quarter, construction costs, um, as we came into the COVID recession and government was throwing money out at fiscal stimulus, which was a good thing to do, they threw a lot at construction, you know, through first homeowner grants, through um, grants for renovations. And it now looks like that wasn't a very good policy at all. I mean, there is no doubt that the majority of this is around supply disruptions because COVID has affected both workers and, and, uh, and commodities in Australia, but it's also affected global supply chains. We're now seeing China go back into more lockdowns. That's going to have an ongoing effect. We've seen the war in on, on Ukraine, which has um, increased energy prices. You know, all of these things are well outside the control of the government, but there are some things that they can control things around tertiary education fees, um, which have gone up, certainly that construction side of things. So, you know, there's there's some things that government can do, but a lot of it's outside their control. And so what about Labor, given we're in an election context? Does it have a plan to manage inflation? Look, I think it's pretty hard for either side to manage inflation other than perhaps around some of those those bigger policy issues, you know, making sure that you're not making things worse. It's more kind of what they don't do. So don't stimulate parts of the economy that don't need it. Don't raise your government fees, you know, health and education if you can avoid it for a while. But I think, you know, more of this is is is, is at play with the broader um, what's going on in the world. The thing governments actually have a role in is, is obviously in wage fixing in this country mm. and in, in lifting productivity. So, you know, there's, there's limited amounts they can do. Obviously, the Reserve Bank is playing a role with monetary policy and interest rates. But again, that's not going to affect what Putin does in Ukraine and what, what impact that has on energy prices. You mentioned the Reserve Bank. It's their job to manage this inflation scenario through interest rates. Um, they might hike rates next week is one expectation. Is it likely to do that? Look, you know, I'm going to sit on the fence and say it's 50-50. And the, the reason I do that, I mean, one... From a from a broader economic perspective, and I mean, unless you're a trader in a in a bank who's you know sitting on a portfolio of assets, you know, obviously you're worried which day it's going to happen. But from a broader perspective, monetary policy takes months and months to work through the system. So whether they go in in May or June is neither here nor there. The reason that they might wait till June, other than political reasons, of course, is that they have already said they want to look at the next wages number, which comes out after the May board meeting. They're looking at what they can control. And for the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates to slow demand when demand is already slowing, when all these factors are being caused by 
you know, what's going on in the world at large, that really risks us getting into that terrible period of, of stagflation where they're crushing economic growth, but not able to actually have an influence on prices. So there's some reasons for them to wait. I suspect now the bigger question is not whether they go in May or June, but by how far they go. And again, it's a question of how concerned are they that these prices are going to stay in the system for a long time. And certainly the anecdotal evidence we're hearing from retailers about passing through prices, the things we're hearing from the International Monetary Fund, that these things are going to be going on for at least a year, it makes you think that they're going to have to do more rather than less and sooner rather than later. So whoever wins the election is staring down a pretty tough outlook then for the economy. You know, I'm definitely a, an optimist and I'm finding it quite hard to to hold on to that optimism at the moment. I think we're in this very, very difficult situation. The shocks that are coming through the system, you know, we really have to um, keep everything crossed that COVID disruptions really abate quickly and that we can get supply chains up and running and at least remove that part of the the pressure, even if we can't do um, anything about what's happening in, in Europe at the moment, that at least would be something that would significantly help. Independent economist, Nikki Hutley. Well, the economy isn't the only issue the Coalition has struggled with this week. Traditionally, the Coalition sees defence and security as safe ground too. But questions have swirled for a second week about the Solomon Islands security pact with China and how the Australian government has handled it. Well, Nikki Sava is a long-time political correspondent. She's a columnist with the SMH and The Age. She was also a senior advisor to Prime Minister John Howard and Treasurer Peter Costello. Nikki, we'll come to national security in a moment, but we had confirmation that everything's costing so much more for people this week. And now an interest rate rise is coming too, possibly next week. What are the implications for the coalition's campaign for another term? Well, it was, I would have thought, very unsettling uh, for the government to be confronted by that figure. Everybody knows, I mean, you know from your own trips to the supermarket or to the petrol station how expensive everything is. But then to have that actually officially confirmed would have, I think, made them stop for a bit and think about uh, their messaging. What we had uh, when the campaign started was, uh, look, you have to stick with us because we've managed the economy and national security so well. We're a safe pair of hands. Uh, You know what you get, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now that message has had to change to say, you know what, you have to stick with us because everything is turning to custard. How can you possibly trust the other side to handle it when things are going so badly? So I think it is a very tricky message to try and sell. You're starting off from one place and ending up in another thanks to an official set of figures that have come out and you know that there's going to be more bad news on the way. Mm. Labor's obviously on the attack. Uh, We are in the middle of an election campaign. But seriously, do they have any real alternative plan to rein in inflation? I mean, top economists are saying this looks like it's going to be extremely difficult now to get back under control. Well, uh, I think that's right. It will be. Things are going to be very tough for a, a very long time. There are matters that are outside the control of the government. There is no doubt about that. 
but it's not like this has just suddenly appeared. This has been brewing for quite a while and well before Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, people knew from their own bills that the price of everything was going up well before that, right? So there are questions of supply and the pandemic. COVID is obviously uh, still having a huge role there. And if you listen to Labor, they say, well, you know, the government refuses to take responsibility. It's the usual thing from Morrison. It's never his fault. He's never to blame. And we will make it better. How? Well, uh, they say that there will be cheaper childcare. A million families will be better off under their policy. They say that they will um, move to increase wages through uh, making submissions to the Fair Work Commission, partly, but also by productivity improvements and improving the NBN, boosting manufacturing and free TAFE and so on. But all those things take time. You know, it's not as if they will be elected on May 21, if they're lucky enough to be elected, and things will suddenly improve on May 22. That ain't going to happen. I think we're in for a very rough time uh, for quite a few months and probably till the end of the year. Now, national security, particularly the fallout over the Solomon Islands-China Pact, the Prime Minister talked earlier this week of a red line if China builds a base there, but then he couldn't say what that meant. Um, How is this playing for the Coalition? Well, again, this is supposed to be one of their great strengths, right? And all of a sudden, not so much. I wrote the other day that they were looking a bit like Dad's army. You know, the news broke about China and the Solomon Islands, and it looked as if they'd been taken by surprise by it. I think the worst thing from their point of view was the appearance and probably the fact of not doing enough to try and head it off. They sent the junior minister, Zed Seselja. The foreign minister hasn't been there since 2019. There seemed to be this great reliance on the fact that, you know, we're such a great big happy family with the Pacific, you know, we're best friends, you know, we pray together, we stay together, all that kind of thing. Well, none of that seemed to work, right? And almost every strategic or intelligence analyst was scathing about the government's performance here. I spoke to Peter Jennings earlier this week. He's had decades of experience in this area and he was very, very critical of the government and what they hadn't done. His line was that this was obvious from way back in 2019 when the Solomons switched recognition from Taipei to Beijing. That was a really big warning bell and it seemed to be ignored. And there was this naive you know, view that the Australian government could sway Pacific Islanders by simply being, you know, nice people. Um, That's not how the world works anymore. Yes, and of course, at the end of the week, Nick Warner, a a very um, top-level security official for Australia for many years, he's written in the Financial Review that we've squandered the chance to build deep relations with the Pacific for the last 20 years. So it's all pretty scathing. Um, 
Pacific Islanders have been banging on at us about this too, about a lack of deep engagement for years. So what about Labor? It unveiled its Pacific plans this week. Does it look like it'll do any better? Look, um, who, who knows? I mean, they had policy which was more or less ready to go, right? So the timing for them in, in one sense was good. And there are a number of matters there that they've addressed which would probably make things better, although, again, analysts said that it was a bit piecemeal, right? Mm. So there's obviously a lot more that needs to be done. But the point is, and this is the problem with Morrison's rhetoric now on the red line, um, which was a line that he pinched from the US. Uh, Kurt Campbell, the White House coordinator for the Indo-Pacific, um, used it, and he'd borrowed it from Barack Obama, <laughs> who used it to warn Syria against using chemical weapons, Right. Well, the Syrians did use chemical weapons and Obama did nothing about it. So let's assume that China does go ahead and establish a base there. What exactly are we going to do about it? What, if anything, can we do now to prevent it or to reverse it? And we haven't had an answer to that. Mm. We don't know. And we wait to see. Mm. So, Nikki, with three weeks still to go in the campaign, people's financial struggles are now firmly front and centre. There is an official number attached to them, so they're officially real. Plus this national security debate. Has either side got the edge in this campaign? I don't think they have. I mean, all the polls show that on a two-party preferred basis, Albanese would win. But that's if the election was held today. Well, it's not being held today. There's still uh, another 21 days to go to seal the deal. And there are, you know, a staggering number of people, 27%, who say they're going to vote for someone else, um, neither of the major parties. So I don't think Albanese has been able to seal the deal yet. And so he has three weeks to do that. He cannot afford to make another single mistake, not one. And uh, he has his launch on Sunday in Perth. Uh, that is his big moment to reset now after coming out from COVID isolation. So, you know, he has to, I think, deliver a speech that is really going to grab people's attention and for them to say, yeah, this guy has got something that I need that, you know, he's going to be able to do, that he's going to make my life better than it is now. And I don't think he's been able to convince them of that yet, but he needs to do it and he needs to start with a big bang on Sunday. Nikki Sava, 21 days to go. Good luck. Can't wait. Nikki Sava, she's an author and a journalist. Well, Russia darkly rattled its nuclear threat again this week as the West ramped up its arms deliveries to Ukraine. The US President Joe Biden asked Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine. It's a dramatic escalation for US funding for the war with Russia as the West appeared to show hardened resolve for a win in Ukraine. Russia's President Vladimir Putin had already delivered another ominous warning to countries trying to intervene. If someone intends to intervene in the ongoing events from the outside and create strategic threats for Russia that are unacceptable to us, he said, 
they should know that our retaliatory strikes will be lightning fast. And after weeks of threatening to cut off Europe's gas supplies, Russia acted, cancelling exports to Poland and Bulgaria. European leaders were scathing. Gazprom's announcement that it is unilaterally stopping gas deliveries to certain EU member states is another provocation from the Kremlin. But it comes as no surprise that the Kremlin uses fossil fuels to try to blackmail us. But as well as prosecuting a menacing war that is transforming European security, Vladimir Putin has also become a much harsher leader at home. It's been extreme uh, since the start of the invasion. We saw the final closing down of the remaining elements of the free media. Professor Daniel Treisman is an expert in Russian politics at the University of California, Los Angeles, and co-author of a new book, Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. At the same time, just before the invasion, as the troops were massing on the border, the last elements of civil society were banned, in particular the memorial organization, which worked to protect human rights in Russia and to preserve the record of repressions in the Stalin era and since. So all that was pretty much closed down. And at the same time, new legislation was introduced, which, for instance, made it illegal with a threatened 15-year jail sentence for even referring to the war as a war. So criticism of the war was made into a criminal offence. And so is this transition sort of to a culture of fear, I suppose? Is it a radical change for Russia under Putin? You said it's been extreme. What came before and, and how is it different to what we're seeing now? Well, I think there's been a quite dramatic transformation in the type of authoritarian regime that we see in Russia. When Putin first came to power, there was still a great deal of freedom for opposition parties opposition media. Putin started out by taking control of the mass media, but still there was a lot of freedom. That changed, especially after 2012, when Putin came back to the Kremlin for his third term, and even more so after the annexation of Crimea. And I would say that the next big step up in repression came in 2018. Putin started giving operational control over domestic politics to the security services rather than to political professionals in the Kremlin. So you could say there's been a progression from really a kind of soft dictatorship based more on manipulating information than any overt repression to a full-fledged fear dictatorship in which there's no mystery about what is expected of citizens. They're expected to obey, not criticize the government or criticize the war, and they're kept in line using fear. I guess at one level it seems logical that someone who's going to launch an unprovoked conflict with a neighbour might be this repressive at home, but but why would Putin feel it necessary to, to escalate to this extent? I don't think it, it's directly connected to the invasion, except to say that I think they're both caused by the same progression within Putin's own thinking and the people that he's surrounding himself with. So I think both of those are consequences of a worldview that he's developed, which is extremely cynical and views the West as 
out to undermine his regime, determined to overthrow it. And the only response is to try and weaken the West. And domestically, I think in part, he's been responding to the modernization of Russian society, which has led to more pressure on the regime to open up. There were major protests when he came back in 2012, then nationwide protests in 2017, 2019, 2020, 2021. And those protests convinced him that his political team was not really up to handling the job of controlling domestic society. And that led him to give more operational control to the FSB and the other security services. I'm interested in some of the language we're hearing from Russian state media in particular, you know, as the conduit for Putin's messaging, I suppose. What sort of language are we hearing and what sort of symbolism has he adopted as he's gone down this path? Well, some of the most dramatic language is coming from Putin himself, uh, and it really suggests the nature of this new regime that's emerging, I think. So he's talked about traitors in the midst of Russian society. He's compared disloyal Russians to flies that may fly into one's mouth, but one should spit them out. Uh, He's talked about the purging of Russian society. All of these images suggest a very harsh and aggressive type of authoritarianism, which is very different from the kind of regime he had earlier. And this is very different from the kind of language that he used in his first two terms in office, for instance, when he was much more concerned to project the image of a competent, benevolent leader operating in a basically democratic way. Now it's very much, it's, it's a fight against external enemies, against internal enemies on behalf of the true Russians, as he defines them. So we've really got the kind of language that was common in the 1930s showing up in Putin's speeches these days. And the Russian population is, is not a monolith, of course, but how do Russians feel about all of this? What do we know about the public sentiment? Well, of course, this is extremely difficult to judge because, as I mentioned, uh, people can go to jail for 15 years for just referring to the war as a war. Mm. So the opinion polls that we see now are obviously to be taken with some skepticism, but I think it's very likely that part of the public has rallied behind the flag, rallied behind Putin, choosing to accept his version of events about why Russia had to intervene in Ukraine. Although, of course, as we saw right after the invasion, there was a very quick outburst of disagreement coming from really the cultural, the intellectual elite, even local government. There were open letters signed by hundreds and hundreds of people. There was a petition, which I think got 1.2 million signatures very quickly against the war. And there have been demonstrations which were very quickly and harshly repressed. But still, we can see from just the fact that 15,000 people have been arrested for participating in these demonstrations, that suggests the scale of discontent. So society is split, but as economic conditions deteriorate and the sanctions will take some time to have their full effect, as they do, I think we may see a softening of that support and more, if not overt opposition, more discontent under the surface showing up. And so where to from here for Putin's regime, for his leadership? What are the risks to him? 
In the short run, we shouldn't expect any attempted coup or imminent collapse of the regime. In the longer run, what I would look for is the combination of different destabilizing factors, the economy deteriorating dramatically, public unrest, and simultaneously conflicts within the elite. Already, there's some sense of behind-the-scenes conflicts between different parts of the security services and the armed forces, all of whom are upset with the fact that the war isn't going better. So if the disagreements at the elite level coincide with growing public unrest, we could see a kind of meltdown of the current regime. But on the other hand, it's also possible that the Kremlin will stay in control that they'll solve the problems that have been so obvious in the initial part of the war, and that they'll stay on top of local sites of discontent, providing money quickly to appease those regions or those enterprises that are in danger of mass protest. So it, it's very difficult to know how this will develop, but I think we should only expect to see significant change uh, coming in a few months as the full effect of the war and the isolation and the sanctions really becomes felt. Russia expert Professor Daniel Treisman from the University of California, Los Angeles. Well, that's our episode for this week. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want more on the election campaign, check out the ABC's Australia Votes podcast, looking at what's on the minds of voters and answering your questions about the campaign. Well, we are This Week, and we're produced by Eleanor Whitehead, Madeline Jenner, Will Ockenden, and me, Linda Mottram. Have a good weekend. Listener.